0: This week, we're going to wrap up this section and we're going to focus in on one thing that James is saying that seems to be a key to answered prayer and a key to, to, um, to the, the whole concept of healing and, and what it is that apparently James sees as lacking in the church at that time. I want to pick it up in verse 15, and you'll recall from last week, James makes the statement, he says that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And you'll recall that from last week. And so James just tells us that faith is critical as far as a condition for answered prayer. Certainly we've seen that. Then in verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then he says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The idea is that, James is writing to believers, writing to believers. The effectual prayer prayer of, an, uh, of a righteous man can accomplish much. The idea is that you are a believer. And so there's no, there's no issues between you and God. As far as you know, there, there's no issues that you, you're being obedient, you're, you're listening, and um, you're, you're where you need to be as far as in your walk with the Lord. And he says, so uh, the prayer it doesn't mean you're perfect, but the effectual prayer, Fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So we we, we don't have any issues between us and God. And so James kind of concludes that whole section, but then he says, now to illuminate this, James would say, I want to give you an example that ties it all together. And so he gives this example that is for that first church and certainly for us, and we just simply pick that up in verse 17, and he says, here's the example. Verse 17, Elijah, and you want to underline that, Elijah, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly, now go ahead and prayed earnestly, that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Verse 19, he says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So there's, there's two things going on here. I'm going to deal with verses 17 and 18 when he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, he saves his soul from death. We've looked at that before, and if you want to track that down, you could look at the first CD that we did on the the teaching of James, where James talks about, when he talks about saving your soul in the book of James, as he's writing to believers, he's not talking about heaven and hell, but he's talking about, is your faith doing you any good this side of heaven? And I would encourage you to get the CD on that and listen to that, but I'm going to focus in on verses 17 and 18 today as we wrap this up. Apparently... James sees something lacking in the church, something that's critical, something that's crucial, uh, something, again, lacking in their lives, something that apparently was destroying their lives as far as their walk with God. It was something that was glaringly absent. And so in verse 15, he says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And then verse 17, he says, now here's the example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed. Now, James is going to use Elijah as the, the example and what it is that you and I need to hear, but he's also going to use a certain time period, a certain situation in Elijah's life that James wants to apply to us. And so that's what we're going to look at today. But the first point that I want you to get, and James wants us to get because he tells us this, and you want to write it down, is just simply that Elijah was just a man. He was just a man. The New International Version says it like this. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. There in your outline. Just a man, just like us. He put his toga on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. He was just a man. Now, why is that so important? We tend to look at people in the Bible and we think that they were more than men. The reality is they were just men that God chose to use in some very special ways, but there was something in Elijah, because he's being used as the example, James wants us to know that whatever it is that Elijah had, because he's the example for us, that whatever it is that he had is available to us. Make sense so far? And what we're going to find out is that Elijah was, an inc- was a man of incredible faith. Now, typically, as believers, we go through what I'm going to call today the three stages of faith. And hopefully this is going to give some explanation as to where we're going and and, uh, where we're going to wind up. But there are three basic stages of faith that we go through, hopefully. You want to hear what they are? Okay. Well, the first stage, I would suggest, is that we believe in Jesus. Very simple, Jesus said simply, Believe in God, believe also in me. So what do we do? We believe in Jesus, we invite Jesus into our life, we accept the free gift of God, we accept salvation, we were unsaved as far as not knowing him, not, not with him in eternity, and then we invite him in, we are saved, we're going to spend eternity with him. We believed in Jesus. Now sadly, for many people, this is as far as it goes. As a matter of fact, many of us come from a church background where we believed in Jesus, and then that's kind of it. And then we're told from there on out, the main goal of believing in Jesus is now to be good boys and girls. How many of you come from a church background like that? A couple of us? Well, that's the kind of church background I come from. We believed in Jesus, and then once you believed in Jesus, then the goal is to be a good boy and a good girl. I'm going to suggest to you that although that is good, as a matter of fact, being a good boy or girl is great, it's just not the goal. And it's not a compelling reason to walk with God, which is why I think that many times when our kids turn 18 or 19 years of age, they simply walk away from the faith because the most compelling picture that we've ever been able to give them is now that you're saved, be good. Anybody get excited about being good? I mean, it's good, but it's not exciting. And so we walk away, and so there's more. So I I would say that's the first stage, and sadly it's where many stop, but there's another stage, and it goes beyond believing in Jesus, and the second stage is simply where we believe Jesus. Go ahead and write that down. We tend to believe in Jesus, but sadly many times we don't believe Jesus. Um, We have these core beliefs that sometimes contradict our faith and where we profess to believe in Jesus, we just don't really believe Jesus. For instance, there in your outline, one possibility, Jesus is speaking at the Last Supper to his disciples and he says this incredible statement, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says, and you might want to underline, no one comes to the Father but through me. So here's what Jesus says. I'm the only way. Nobody goes to heaven apart from me. Nobody has a relationship with God apart from me. I'm it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody gets to God, gets to heaven apart from me. Now, have I stretched what Jesus is saying? Pretty straightforward stuff. But here's what we find. We meet people who believe in Jesus, but they also believe that you can get to heaven by being good. That you know you you love your, your family, you do nice things, you say nice things, you lead a good life, and they say, I believe in heaven, but I believe that this person over here has led this good life, they can go to heaven too. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so here's what happens we find ourselves believing in Jesus, but we don't believe Jesus. Does that make sense? Another example. Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter 18, one of my favorite chapters. He's giving a story, an illustration. It says there in your outline, Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So he tells them the parable about praying, not losing heart. Then he tells the parable. He concludes at the end of that. And he says, Now, however, at the very end of it all, he says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's going to be his big question. He's just taught on prayer, given a big illustration. He says, but at the end of it all, I just wonder when I return, will I find faith on the earth? So here, here, here's where, where we find ourselves. If we were asked today, do we believe that prayer is important, we would all say, yes, absolutely. We'd all give the Sunday school answer, yes, I believe that prayer is important. Okay, now because we believe that prayer is important, and we claim to really believe that, do we have a time set aside on a daily basis where we spend time with God in prayer? Some would call it a devotional life. Some would call it a prayer time. Um, Some would call it a quiet time, whatever somebody would term it. But the question is, since we believe that prayer is important, uh, do we actually have that time set aside where we do this thing that we think is so important. Not talking about praying for your meals. Your meals are blessed. But this whole thing about, do we have that time set aside? Now, here's what I'm willing to bet. Many believers who would say, I believe that prayer is important, would then turn around and say, but I don't really have that time of prayer on a regular daily basis where I do this. Now, why is that? This isn't to make anybody feel bad. But here's why. Although we believe in Jesus, we have a core belief. And that core belief, as it relates to prayer, even though we give the Sunday school answer, absolutely we think it's important. The, our core belief looks at prayer and says, but it's not really going to do anything. It's not really going to change anything. It doesn't really matter. And so we go, why bother? And so even as people who believe in Jesus, we find ourselves not believing Jesus. that makes sense? If you've been around Calvary Jupiter for some time, you've certainly heard us talk about when God says, put me first, put God first in our finances. We know all the verses. God says, put me first, that's what I want. You put me first, here's what I'm going to do in your life, but you've got to put me first, and here's what I'm going to do. And we've seen the verses time and time again. Now, we believe in Jesus, but statistically, most people do not ever come around to the place where they put God first in their finances. So what are we saying? Well, we believe in Jesus, but at this point, we don't actually believe Jesus, Because our behavior always reveals what we really believe. And so we would say we believe in, but the truth is we don't always believe Jesus. With me? Now, again, that's not to make us feel bad, but but just to maybe there's some beliefs that we want to examine before we find ourselves in front of him and he asks us about the beliefs that we held. Uh, You'll find that in the New Testament, Jesus is continually challenging and working on the beliefs of his disciples. For instance, in Mark's gospel, there in your outline, you'll notice that it says, they began to discuss with one another the fact. Now, I want you to underline the word, the fact, that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? That's their circumstances. He says, do you not yet? I want you to underline the word yet. Do you not yet see or understand? He says that apparently it's been some time. They should be understanding something by now. And then he says, or do, underline this, do you have a hardened heart? Now underline that. I'll come back to that. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Now when he says, do you not yet understand, the indication is, do I need to explain it more? Is there more information that you need? Is there is there something? Could I be a little bit more clear about this? He says, do you not yet understand? You've been with me a while. You, you still haven't seemed to grasp this, even though you've seen me do some incredible things. I, I'm not sure what I can do to make it any more clear. And then he, in, in there, and had you underline it, he looks at his disciples and he goes, or is it that you have a hardened heart? You have a hardened heart. now here, Here's what happens. I, I as I, as I look at that line, just in the middle of that, he goes, could just be, disciples, you have a hardened heart. You know, I, I told you to believe me here. You didn't. And all of a sudden, when you didn't believe me, your heart just got a little bit more hard. And another time I brought it around, you didn't believe. Your heart got a little bit more hard. And now, your heart is so hard in this area, you just can't believe anymore. And it's just, you have a hardened heart. And that could be certainly a possibility. They believed in Jesus but they hadn't come to the place where they were believing Jesus, and so he realized that they had some work to do. That makes sense. So we're going to go down to number three, and it says, "So we believe in Jesus, then we believe Jesus, but then there there is another stage that that sadly um, most will never really get to." It would be great if we did, and and certainly we work on it. But the third stage isn't just believing in Jesus. It's not just believing Jesus. That's certainly the second stage. But the third stage is where we believe like Jesus. We believe like Jesus. Jesus kept saying these things to his disciples, things that kind of trouble us as New Testament believers. At the Last Supper, Jesus, behind closed doors, talking to his disciples, says this on your outline. He says, Truly, truly, which means you can take it to the bank, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, will he do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, has that verse ever bothered you as a believer? Am I the only one it bothers? I mean, I read it, I know what it says, but the truth be known, it hasn't always been my experience. Has it been yours? So, so something's missing in the equation. Wouldn't you agree? I, I would say that there is... This is one of those things that Jesus says to the disciples. He doesn't say to the crowd. And I would suggest that it goes beyond believing in Jesus, goes beyond even believing Jesus, but the next day is being believing like Jesus. Now, here, here here's a little bit more for us to think through. One day, the disciples come to Jesus... And they're troubled because they haven't been able to heal somebody. In that case, it was literally casting out a demon. And they come to Jesus and they go, okay, so what's the problem? To which Jesus says there in your outline, he said to them, because, here's the problem, the littleness of your, what is it? Faith. He says, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, with your pen in hand, mustard seed You, underline, will... What's the next word? Say. Underline that. To this mountain. Move from here to there, and it will move. The result and nothing will be impossible to you. I'm suggesting in this that Jesus is teaching that when we are believing like Jesus, he says, you will say... It implies that there's not the begging or even the asking, but just the speaking. And he says, and the result will be that nothing will be impossible to you. Now, if this was the only time that Jesus said this, we would look on and say, okay, well, maybe we're missing something. Maybe we need to just, you know, not really deal with that. We'd skip over it, something. But he says, you will say, In Mark chapter 11, Jesus gets up in the morning. He's walking with his disciples, and as he heads into Jerusalem, he sees a tree, and the tree is not bearing fruit. Jesus goes up, and he finds that there's no fruit on the tree. So Jesus looks at the tree, and he says, May no one ever eat of your fruit again, which the disciples look on and go, Okay, Jesus is talking to a tree. He can talk to the tree if he wants to, but they don't really think anything of it. Nothing really happens to the tree. So they go into town. They teach all day, and as they're teaching all day, They come back that night. It's after dark. They spend the night where they were the night before. And then they come walking back in town the next morning. As they're walking in town the next morning, one of the disciples looks over and goes, Hey, Jesus, that tree you spoke to, it's dead. It died. And it says, literally withered from the roots up. To which Jesus turns to his disciples, again, not the crowd, but to his disciples, and he says this most amazing thing there on your outline. He says, and Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Now, if you have a literal translation, it will say, literally, have faith of God, or have the faith of God. If you look it up in the original language, it says, have the faith of God. In most of our English translations, it says, have faith in God. We'll stick with that. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever, and then he says, says, underline that, to this mountain. Underline that. Says, to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he, what's that word? Says. Underline the word says. Is going to happen. It will be granted him. Therefore, based upon everything I just said, I say to you, all things for which you pray, underline that, And, what's the next word? Ask, underline that. Believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Believing like Jesus implies that things are going to happen because of what you say, when you believe like him. Now, I don't believe that we can ever believe like him until we fully believe him. It's just simply the the next step. In this, he says, whoever says to this mountain... And then he says, but believes that what he says is going to happen. But then he says, all things for which you pray and ask. Pray and ask. If I come to you and I say, hugs and kisses, are they the same thing? Would you say that they go together? For the most part, absolutely. When he says, pray and ask... In this case, Jesus is separating praying and asking as though there's a difference. He doesn't define for us what asking is because we know what asking is, don't we? We we know what that is. And if you have kids, you know what asking is. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never stops. Asking, asking, asking. But he says pray and ask. I'm suggesting that when he says pray here in this verse, the illustration that he gives, he says whoever says to and what he believes, what he says. It has to do with saying, and we'll certainly look at that. So far, so good? Okay. James, in James chapter 5, says, I want to give you an example of faith. And, And it's the example that you need to really think about, you need to consider, and you need to apply. And he gives the example of Elijah. And I'm going to suggest, even before we get into this, that Elijah's secret, very simply, and you want to write this down, is that he believed like Jesus. He believed like Jesus. Now, as James refers to Elijah, here's the part that we miss. James is writing in the first century to a bunch of people who became believers, but they come out of a very, very strong Old Testament background. We would say Old Testament, the rest of the world would say Hebrew Scriptures. It would be very common for each young boy to memorize at least the first five books of the Old Testament. And many people in that culture, in that religious system, would memorize the entire Old Testament. They were familiar with what the Bible says. And so when James says, I want you to think of this, the prayer of faith, all this, and and now, now use Elijah as the example, for them they go, okay, we know the story, the lights go on. But you and I don't come from a very strong Old Testament background. So for us, the lights don't go on like they would for the people in that first century. So you and I need to get some more details, a little bit more information. We need to know the story. Do you want to know the story? Okay, well, here we go. In the time of Elijah, there was an evil king named Ahab. Now, what made him so evil? What made him so evil was that he was... As the king, he was supposed to be telling people to worship God. But instead of having people worship God, he was having people worship idols. As a matter of fact, he had killed some of the the prophets of God and the priests of God. So not, not such a good king. The Bible calls him evil. He's wicked. And it's at that time where there's a man, and his name is Elijah. And Elijah is sort of disgusted with what it is that the king is doing because he's leading the people to worship idols. So Elijah decides he's going to go and confront the king. I'll put the verse there on on the screen. And it says that Elijah the Tishbite, one of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, kind of walks up to the king, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Except at my word. Now there's a couple of things you need to know. It's at this point that Elijah and Ahab become enemies. Ahab hates Elijah. He wants to kill Elijah, but God never allows that to happen. But he hates him. Well, not only that, um, in the story, as you go this week and read it, and you've got to read this story, it's such a great story. As you read the story, this is the first time that Elijah appears in the Old Testament. Being the first time that Elijah appears in the Old Testament, there's nothing that says that God appeared to Elijah and says to Elijah, "Go tell the king, no rain for 3 years." Nowhere does it say that. Now we're going to assume that somehow some way God communicated what it is that he wanted to do, but it just doesn't say that God said, "Go tell the king." But Elijah shows up before the king and says, "Guess what, king? I don't like what you're doing, and so for the next couple of years it's not going to rain until I say so." And so Elijah leaves. With me so far? So some time passes. Now here's what we know. It doesn't rain for the next few years. Time passes. And uh, three years goes by. And uh, go ahead and put the next verse on this screen. Notice this verse that comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. The other one is chapter 17. At the very beginning, this is chapter, chapter 18. And it says that after a long time, well, how long? Well, in the third year, three years, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So this time, God does come to Elijah and speak. And he says, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, just, just notice the address here. This is chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. And uh, you're going to want to know that in just a couple of moments. So, so God, in this case, speaks to Elijah And he says, okay, Elijah, it's been three and a half years, and uh, it hasn't rained. Things are getting pretty difficult. So now what I want you to do is I want you to go, and I want you to speak to the king this time. And so Elijah comes on the scene. Here's what we're going to find, that our story is going to be picked up about verse 41. A lot is going to happen between Ahab and Elijah in the first 40 verses. You want to read it this week, because when I say that Elijah and Ahab were enemies, no kidding. Ahab hated Elijah. As a matter of fact, when Ahab would refer to Elijah, he would say, you troubler of Israel. To which Elijah would very boldly say, I'm not the one calling people to worship idols. You're the one who's bringing this trouble on Israel. And, and so they hated one another. Wish I could just convey how much they... So Ahab wants to kill him. So things happen in the next 40 verses. You want to read it this week. And we're going to pick it up in verse 41. I put that on your outline. Here's what it says. Everybody there? Verse 41, it says, Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain, of heavy rain. Go ahead and underline that. Go eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, which is a mountain, bent down to the ground, and then underline, put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. Now, underline, there is nothing there, he said. Seven times, underline, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Now, some people suggest that the servant, whose name was Gehazi, we get that from other places, that um, that when he sees the cloud rising, he comes back and rather sarcastically tells Elijah, there's a little cloud, it's like the size of a man's hand. And the idea is, I've done this seven times, leave me alone, there's a little bitty cloud, deal with it, I'm not doing this anymore. So, so some suggest that there's a little sarcasm there and not really faith. Would that make sense? Especially if you're the guy who's been sent seven times. It is, so Elijah said to a servant, go and tell Ahab. Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black, with cl- grew black with clouds. Now, this is a great story. And you want to make sure that this week you go home and you read it. James says this is the example. James uses this to, for that first church in the first century to unpack some biblical truths. I want to just make some observations from the story. Most of the observations will come right from the story, and then there's one or two freebies. The first one is a freebie, and it's simply this. And the first thing I would want to say is that beliefs are installed. I wondered if I should use the word instilled versus, versus the word installed, but the word installed actually communicates it a little bit more clearly. In the 1600s, there was a philosopher named John Locke. John Locke held that man comes into the world, basically tabla rasa was the way that he he articulated it, which just means blank slate. And the idea is that, that we all come into the world and we're just blank. Now, as it relates to temperament, I don't know that that's really true. But as it relates to beliefs, that is true. No one is ever born with any beliefs. All of our beliefs come after we are born. Typically, our beliefs come our worldview, how we view things, comes from the words that we hear from the people around us and what they speak on a regular basis. So if you grow up in a family that always talks about how broke you are, you just kind of grow up believing that you're broke. If uh, you grow up in a family that, that talks about how you can do anything you, you want to do, you can accomplish things, you just kind of grow up believing that. It really comes from what you're told and told and told growing up. Now, advertisers, marketers, they understand this, that what they tell us and tell us and tell us and tell us, ultimately, we begin to believe. So they want to saturate us with their message time and time again because they understand that beliefs are installed, and over time, we begin to believe in whatever it is that they want us to, to know. So far, so good? Now, the Bible says it like this. The Bible says, so then, Paul would write, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, hearing by the word of God. Paul is saying, what we believe comes by what we have been hearing. Faith comes by hearing. The word faith and the word belief is the same word in the original language. We just break it out in the English language because it makes more sense to us that way. Faith comes by hearing. The idea is what you hear and hear and hear is what you ultimately believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There was a time when you did not believe, a time that we did not believe. One day we heard the message, we heard God's word something happens, we heard it, and we believed it. We heard it first, and then we believed it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In our story, as Elijah is going along, God appears to him somehow, way, speaks to him, communicates to him, and says, it's going to rain. Elijah believes what he has heard, and from that point on, he just knows it's going to rain. God has spoken to him, and he believes that. The next thing you would want to write down is simply that Elijah chose to believe what God said over the obvious circumstances. Elijah chose to believe what God had said over the obvious circumstances. What were the circumstances? Well, for three and a half years, it hasn't rained. There's no sign of rain. Elijah tells Ahab it's going to rain. Then he goes up the mountain. How long does it take to go up the mountain? Well, maybe an hour, two hours. So he goes up the mountain, no clouds in the sky, nothing that looks like rain. Sits down for a while, puts his head between his knees. Don't know how long he sits there, could be a half hour, could be an hour, could be an hour and a half, could be two hours. We don't really know. At some point he tells a servant, Go look at the sea and see if you see a cloud. We don't know how far the servant is away from the sea. Uh, apparently, Elijah's not sitting somewhere where he can look up and see the sea. He sees, his, he sends his servant. His servant goes, could be 10, 15 minutes away, somewhere in the mountain where he can see the sea. Servant looks out, doesn't see anything. Maybe he gazes us for 10, 15 minutes. We don't really know. He comes back. We're not sure how long that takes. Tells Elijah. Elijah sits there. Elijah sits there. We don't know if he sits there for another 10 minutes, another half hour, another hour. We don't really know. But he sits there for a time. And then he tells his servant, Go back. And so he goes back. Now, in all of the circumstances going on, nothing says it's going to rain. There's no clouds. There's nothing that says it's going to rain. There's nothing on the horizon. But God has said it's going to rain. And so Elijah chooses to believe what God has said over his obvious circumstances. With me so far? In this, Elijah chooses, and you want to write this down, Elijah chose to say, or Elijah said, what God said. Elijah said what God said. God said it's going to rain, so all Elijah would say is that it's going to rain. His circumstances said there is no rain, but he just said God has said it, so that's what I'm going to say. So he spoke his faith. How did he speak his faith? Well, in the first line of the paragraph, it says, Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for I hear the sound of a heavy rain. So he spoke his faith, and he said, he says, this is what it's going to be. Elijah said about his circumstances what God said about his circumstances. He did not speak what his circumstances were saying, but he chose to say what God said. There's a great verse, Amos 3.3, and it's an incredible spiritual principle. Simply, if you've been around, this, uh, around church for a while, at this church, you've certainly heard it. it. just says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Amos 3.3. The truth is that we walk with God when we agree with God. We agree with God when we're saying the same things that God is saying. We agree with God when we are saying about our circumstance and situation what God is saying about our circumstance and situation. Does that make sense? And so for me, I want to know what it is that God says, and I want to say that. Sometimes, even when my circumstances aren't saying anything like what God has said. The next thing that I notice is that Elijah's faith involves significant risk. Go ahead and write that down. Elijah's faith involves significant risk. Now you have to remember, and you've got to read the story this week because you'll miss this, but Ahab hates Elijah. He wants to kill him. He's tried to kill him. He wants him dead. He's still going to threaten to kill him, even after this whole story. And so Elijah goes before the king. The king hates him. Many of the people hate him. Elijah's done some things that's really caused some people to hate him. And he says, now listen, it's going to rain. You can go ahead and eat and drink. It's going to rain. If this doesn't happen, it's not that Elijah is going to look stupid. He's going to look dead because the king is going to come after him and it's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. Would you say that there's some significant risk involved in this? That's what you say, yes. There's some significant risk involved in this. Faith always, always, always is going to involve getting out on a limb. For Peter, it involved getting out of a boat. The Bible says that you and I walk by faith. To walk with God is to walk by faith. To walk by faith will always involve risk. If there's no risk involved, there's really no faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it's not on your outline, but we all know the verse it says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We've all heard that. So here's how this works. Walking by faith is what makes the Christian walk exciting. Being a good boy and girl is not exciting. It's good, but it's not exciting. It's not a compelling reason to follow God. So, what does it mean? Well, when you walk by faith, it means that you're, you're, you're somewhere out of your comfort zone. You're in the place of risk, where if God doesn't show up, you're in big trouble. And so because you're in that place where God has to show up, you tend to be good because you want to make sure everything's okay between you and God. With me so far? But being good is not the goal. Faith is the goal. Seven kids... That's faith. If God doesn't show up in my life, I'm a goner. They're they're just, it's it's the level of, if you've ever tried to cross the parking lot with seven kids, let me tell you about faith. And if God doesn't show up, we we don't make it. And and that's just how it is. It's that level of of risk. And here's what he does. God comes on and says, okay, I want you to trust me. And so I'm going to ask you to get out of your comfort zone because I want to develop your faith. And in our family, we have the swimming pool in the backyard. And when our kids are small, I'll get in the middle of the pool. And before they learn how to swim, we're big on having them learn to swim. And I want to be on the side. And I'll say, jump to daddy. And so some of my kids, most of them will go, all right, daddy says jump. And they jump. Right up to the middle of the pool, and I let them hit the water and they go under the water. And as they go under, then I pick them and I pull them up, and they love it. It's a great game. And so we shoot them back to the wall, they jump in, they do this all the time, you know, and they just love doing this. Now, some of my kids, there's a couple, they get on the side of the wall, and I go, Jump to daddy. And they look at me and they go, No way. I mean, if you don't catch me, I'm dead, you know? And I'm like, But I'm daddy. I'm going to catch you. I'm not going to let this happen to you. And they're like, No way. We're not doing this. Now, here's the thing. The one that jumps and the one that doesn't jump, do I love one more than the other? Well, the answer would be obviously no. But wouldn't you agree that the one who doesn't jump, they miss out on the fun, and I miss out on the fun too? But the one who jumps, they get to have the fun, and I get to have the fun with them. Wouldn't you agree? So one is more exciting than the other. So faith is always going to involve some kind of risk on our part because God has to show up. God wants us to live our lives appropriately, but in that place where God needs to show up. For me, that that that's one of the ways that it just helps me be good. Because I need God to show up. But being good is not the goal. It's more the byproduct. So then we also notice, and you want to write this down, that it didn't happen immediately. It didn't happen immediately. Seven times he sends his servant back. We don't know how long it takes. Servant comes back, nothing, nothing, nothing. But we know that even though it's not happening immediately, Elijah isn't saying anything contrary than what it is that God has said. He finds it best to say nothing and just says, go back, go back. Didn't happen immediately. Jesus speaks to the tree one morning and nobody notices anything. But it's not until the next morning that they realize that the tree has now died, but it didn't happen immediately. That makes sense? Then the next thing I would say in this, God said it's going to rain. When God said it, that was his promise. Elijah said at that point, I'm only going to say it's going to rain. And so here's what I would suggest, and you want to write this down. You've heard, certainly heard me say this before, but we simply pray the promise and not the problem. Pray the promise, not the problem. God already knows what the problem is, and so we pray the promise, not the problem. How do we do that? My circumstances say I'm going under, but the promise says that my God supplies all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I don't waver from that. I pray the promise, not the problem. If you want to know some great promises, send me an email. I'll send you a Word document that has a a bunch of wonderful promises that that you can check out. So when I pray the promises, what I'm doing is I'm agreeing with God. When I speak the circumstances, I'm disagreeing with God. So I pray the promise, not the problem. And then the next thing that I notice, and I want to close with this very simply, is that faith is developed by taking steps of faith. Faith is developed by taking steps of faith. There's a great story in the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath. But what we fail to realize or we forget to realize is that it wasn't always the story of David and Goliath, but Goliath was just simply the next step of faith for David. Notice on the screens as we put the verses up there, the story is the Goliath has come out and he's kind of challenged the nation of Israel. And as he's challenging them, David says, I'll go fight him." Saul is the king. And it says, but David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Now, when a lion, remember that, or a bear, and remember that, came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized its hair, struck it, and killed it. So uh, David probably was uh, a good-sized kid. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now here's what he's saying. David comes onto the battle scene and he sees that there's Goliath. And so we focus in on the story of David and Goliath. But there was a story before that. And it wasn't David and Goliath. It was David and the lion. David one day is there and he sees this challenge and recognizes that this is something that God has allowed into his life and he needs to respond with faith. It's a little bit scary. And so he decides to act in faith, certainly involving some risk. And so he goes after this lion. God helps him and he kills the lion. That builds his faith, builds his trust, it builds his confidence. The obstacle came, he challenged it, he took it on with faith. Faith is built, Next thing you know, there's another challenge. The next challenge that comes along, that's a bear. Bear comes along, David has the opportunity to run or to once again step out in faith, have God do something great through him, and so he chooses to step out in faith. Finally, because of step one, the lion, the bear, one day, he's standing before Goliath. Goliath was simply the next step. It wasn't this huge challenge, it was the next step. Now, why is that so important? As you read the story of David and Goliath, here's what you find. There's a few thousand soldiers who are on the hill who are also believers. And every time Goliath comes out, they run and scream and run up the hill. Here's what we know. When a challenge came in their life that God allowed in their life to challenge their faith, they didn't approach it with faith. And so their faith didn't grow. Then something else happened. And once again, they didn't take it on with faith. They didn't trust God. And so their faith didn't grow. And then one day, Goliath shows up. The bottom falls out. And because they have no track record of taking steps of faith, when they see Goliath, the best that they can do is run and scream and run away. Not so good, wouldn't you agree? It's the same thing with you and I. Challenge comes. We believe in Jesus. God allows the challenge. Now it's time for us to believe Jesus. So we believe him. If we don't believe him, we get no benefit from the experience, no benefit from the situation. Our faith doesn't grow. The next situation comes along. Believe Jesus. If we don't, there's no benefit. There's no growing. And then one day a Goliath shows up in our life. And because there's no track record, of God showing up because we've never taken that step of faith, we simply run away screaming. Whereas for the David-type personalities, it's just simply the next step, the next step. So James looks on at Elijah. He, he looks on at the local church, the first century church, and says, I see something, and it's something that's lacking. And, and here's the example of what you need and he uses Elijah. And here's what I know about Elijah. He he spoke his faith. His faith involved significant risk and James says that's the example that I want to close this book with is this one man Elijah. So the question is how are we doing in this walk of faith? How are we doing taking those steps of faith? I mean, we believe in Jesus. Have we come to the place where we are believing Jesus? because we can never believe like him until we believe him. And so how do we know? Well, here's the test. You can go ahead and write this down. Two questions you want to ask yourself. We find out how we're doing. First of all, what was my last step of faith? What was the last time that God called you to take a significant risk, step out, doing something that you believe that God was calling you to do, and you stepped out and trusted him? Well, if you can... See what that is within the next question is simply, what is my next step of faith? Because here's what I've learned about walking with God. It is a continuous relationship of taking steps of faith. As soon as I take one step and I see him show up, I find that he just simply brings another situation to grow my faith and to take that next step. So what was my last step? And what was my next step? And what is my next step? Now as we close, i want to ask you one question. If you don't honestly know what the last step is that you took of faith, where God called you to, out of your comfort zone in an area that he called you to trust him, and you don't know what the next step is, it's an indication that the walk of faith isn't where it needs to be and you might find yourself as a believer in Jesus but not somebody who is currently believing Jesus and that would be something that we'd want to evaluate before we leave this life and stand before him wouldn't you agree so with that we're just going to close in prayer and leave us to evaluate where we're at Father, as we close this, this teaching out, here, here's what I'm asking. Lord, I'm just so convinced that you call us to a walk of faith and that's what makes this exciting because being good is great, but it's not all that compelling. And Father, I pray that you would help us to take those steps of faith where we live our lives in such a way that you have to show up. And, and uh, Father, if you don't show up, we're done, just as we saw in Elijah. And Father, as we see through every person throughout the Bible, whether it's David or Joshua or Moses or whoever, those who chose to trust you, even though their circumstances were completely contrary, who chose to speak what you say as opposed to their circumstances. And, Father, to stand in faith regardless. Lord, help us as we evaluate to see where we are. Illuminate for us. And then, Father, help us take those steps to get us going on this walk of faith so that whatever it is that we have never becomes boring, cold orthodoxy and we lose the vibrancy of all that you want to do in us and through us. Be with us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.